When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of Scholarly Communication. In addition to podcasting, I'm the CEO of a company called Academic Language Experts. At Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short, we help academic scholars, researchers, and science professionals with translation, editing, writing, and publication support for their research. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Custer, THE Campus Editor at The Times Higher Education. Sarah is a higher education journalist who has been working in the UK for the past 10 years as a journalist and editor covering global higher education. She joined THE five years ago and has been involved in the development and launch of its new platform, THE Campus, where she is the editor. She has also been the <coughs> excuse me. She has also been the host of the Times Higher Education podcast for the past three years and has interviewed university leaders, researchers, and academics from around the world. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time um, to chat with me today. Hi, Avi. Thanks for having me. Good to, uh, good to see you and strange to be on this side of the, the questioning dynamic. Yeah, indeed. You know, when I was doing some background research um, to try to prepare for this interview, uh, there was a lot of you asking questions to other people, but it was not as easy to find information about you. So you do a good job of being in the public eye, but also uh, keeping quite private. And yes, that's of, uh, just the way I like it. Yes. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll, we'll continue that way. Um, so tell us, tell us, how does someone get involved in the world of higher education journalism? I think that's the, the, the entire field is a bit of an, an enigma to me. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later, but maybe just start with telling us your own story. Uh, you know, there are researchers, we know what they do. They, they, they research, um, uh, you know, science. There are journalists, we know what they do. Um, you know, they, they try and tell stories about important things that are happening in the world. Um, but maybe tell us how you became involved in higher education journalism specifically. Sure. Uh, so I think like most people's journalism career, it's all about kind of chance encounters and luck. Uh, I did a journalism course. I did a master's in journalism here in London uh, and then was just kind of banging around looking for a job. And the first place that hired me was uh, an education publication. It's called a a B2B. So that's a business to business publication, which is different from a B2C publication, which is a business to consumer publication, which uh, is a bit more kind of like the New York Times or the Guardian or something. Uh, so this is more kind of the looking at the business side of um, education, or it could be the business side of choose any industry, really. Um, so that's kind of where I got started. And then it just became a, a fascinating world. I mean, education in general is something that would be familiar to everybody. Um, 
So it was not that much of a stretch for me to, to understand it and to have an interest in it anyway. Um, and then, yeah, that just kind of set the course for my career. And then I've been with Times Higher Education for the past five years. Um, and THE is the leading B2B education publisher. Uh, but I would say for anybody who's looking to get into higher education journalism, I mean, on any national publication or regional press, there will be an education correspondent and they would be covering K to 12 or primary, the primary sector, all the way up to universities. And that probably bleeds over into research funding or, or science funding or academics and higher education policy. So it's, there's a rich world to cover within higher education journalism, whether you're doing it from a B2B perspective um, or if you're covering it from more of the, the mainstream news. And just a bit of history about Times Higher Education is um, it started as a, an education supplement within the Times of London. Um, and it was, I think it was maybe a weekly supplement. Um, and then it was so popular and became its own standalone thing that we separated from the Times in, I think, 2007 and became a weekly magazine. So um, especially in a, a vibrant media landscape like you will find in the UK, there's certainly an audience uh, for a, a whole variety of, of different topics and higher education is certainly one of them. Got it. And so you may have gotten into this, you know, kind of by mistake, and I can relate um, as someone who started an entire business um, sort of uh, on, a, on a chance. But um, I'm curious, looking back um, on the last few years, what is it that really kind of gets you going, gets you excited in the morning? What are your interest, like what what topics or what specific goals um, are really interest you and drive you to kind of push um, this field forward? I mean, I think just academics in general, you probably find this as well. I'll be speaking with people about their research. Academics are incredibly passionate people, full stop. And speaking to anybody who's passionate about stuff is really interesting. But then if you put on top of that people who are experts in their field about anything, astrophysics, history, medieval literature, uh, Victorian era, like literally anything, uh, it's, it's just so inspiring to speak to those people. And whenever I'm speaking to them, I'm usually speaking to them about some, some sort of aspect of academic life or university structure or strategy or, or very much kind of quite a narrow scope of stuff. But I, I always really enjoy asking people what their discipline is, what their field of expertise is, because they will have this whole other kind of kaleidoscope of, of interest and talent uh, and, and, and research that they do outside of what I'm just speaking to them about. So, so that for me is, is one thing that's really interesting, just speaking to really interesting, smart, passionate people um, on a daily basis. And then also just in general is not to get too like um, weighty about it, but higher education is, is an incredible opportunity for people around the world in terms of social mobility, but also as, as a sign of democracy, uh, academic freedom is hugely important to our societies. So really being a part of that and being part of those conversations and understanding the policy that's happening uh, from governments around the world or not happening and just kind of how the shifting sands of um, higher education policy, research funding, how different societies view higher education, the access that is extended to certain groups or not extended to them. It, it, I think just kind of the social aspect of, of the role that higher education plays in democracies, Western societies, non-Western societies is, is pretty fascinating as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I definitely can relate in terms of asking scholars about their research and them 
you know, sort of can, can, it is something they feel really passionate about and are really kind of, oftentimes I compare it to their, their children, you know, it's like it, their research becomes their part of their identity. Um, and it's just, to, and, and, and because it can at times be such an isolating sort of lonely, um, world just to have someone listen and understand what, you know, what research you're working on and express interest in it and, and ask questions about it can be really, um, really powerful. Um, and I also you know, really love what you're saying about sort of the bird's eye view of how higher education affects society. Because I think that what happens is, is that individual researchers, we kind of um, are so hyper-focused on our niche um, and our specific, you know, corner of research, um, which sometimes, you know, includes a few dozen people around the world and that's it, um, that it's easy to kind of forget about, well, what is what I'm doing together with my fellow department members, but also together with my, you know, entire university, how is it, is it having an impact socially? Um, does everyone have access to what it is that I'm doing? These are really important and big questions, which I'm really happy to hear that you're dealing with because, and, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit, is you described it as B2B. So when I think of B2B, right, business to business, I think about like, okay, how can two organizations or institutions or companies work together and, you know, maximize profit. But it sounds like there are much kind of higher mission driven um, purposes for times higher education. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and kind of what it is that you're trying to deliver either through the, you know, THE campus or just times in general um, to your, who are the people that you're trying to speak to and what ex is exactly you're trying to deliver to them? Yeah, so I think in our context, B2B is could even be kind of you to you, university to university or something, um, because we're very much writing about academia, university, higher education research for people working in that sector. So we're not necessarily writing for kind of a mainstream audience. It's not, even though THE is a magazine and we used to be sold on newsstands around the UK, we're not something that you would find in an airport that like my dad would like pick up just cause he's like browsing the magazine section. Like it's a very specialist niche magazine and we're writing for a very specific audience, even though it's a very global wide audience, cause it's basically anybody working within higher education, but people who are interested in kind of the business of higher education. So that's the policy behind it. That's, um, you know, staffing stuff, academic life, uh, the workloads of early career researchers, student success. I mean, we haven't even mentioned students, but yeah, student success, assessments. Um, these are all really big themes that we cover all the time on Times Higher Education. And with THE Campus specifically, a slight shift on what we're doing with our journalism, which is what is on our main website and in our magazine, is we're really trying to connect people around the world uh, around shared challenges. So that's commissioning pieces from academics or university staff uh, to write about and offer tips and guidance, practical advice, to their peers who might be facing a similar challenge. And that challenge could be how to create um, global research connections or how to build a research team across time zones, all the way down to something as simple as how to get kids to turn on their Zoom cameras if you're in a remote classroom. Uh, but it's still going back to the same audience of uh, people working in universities or in the higher education sphere. Got it. And can you tell us how, you know, obviously Times Higher Education is, you know, like a leading, um, you know, uh, outlet in terms of media and journalism. Um, but can you tell us kind of how is it that 
university officials or administrators are, in, uh, you know, aside from Times Higher Education, are ingesting or, or, or you know, um, receiving content. Um, and where does THE play, you know, where does THE fit into that greater context? So maybe just paint a picture for us of the higher education uh, journalism scene in general. Um, and just tell us a little bit about maybe what makes THE unique. Sure. So um, Times Higher Education is a, is a huge organization. So we've spoken about um, our journalism. So we have uh, our magazine's gone down to fortnightly now since the pandemic. So we do still have a fortnightly magazine, print magazine that we're producing and sending out to subscribers around the world. We obviously have our website where we're publishing news daily. We have newsletters that go out every day. We have weekly newsletters. We have monthly newsletters. So these are all kind of more of the traditional ways that people would consume media. Times Higher Education also has a whole other area of data. So we also have our rankings, which is a lot of the ways that people engage with Times Higher Education. Um, this is data on lots of different metrics around research and um staff to student ratio and number of international students and number of citations and research funding and all this stuff. So our rankings is probably another way that people will find out about us and know about us and engage with us without ever even maybe even reading our journalism. Uh, and then we have a whole other area, which is like a consultancy arm, which is um, just up and running. And it's really helping trying to get institutions to to perform on, a, on an excellence level that maybe they otherwise wouldn't be able to do without our help. Um, going back to the higher education media landscape, I mean, it's it's quite rich, especially in the UK. We, we have a number of competitors that are covering um, the UK sector. Um, but again, like I mentioned, a lot of the national press will cover higher education. So universities are in the news all the time. Academic research is in the news all the time. Scientific research is in the news all the time. COVID was a perfect example of that, about the Moderna vaccine uh, and the AstraZeneca vaccine that was developed at the University of Oxford and the Moderna vaccine that was developed by with the help of researchers at Harvard and Vanderbilt. So it's there all the time. The policy is there. The, the research funding is there. It's always, it's always, it's, at times higher education, we'll go into the nitty gritty of uh, where the research funding came from and what policy was in place to facilitate that kind of stuff. But in like a mainstream news article, they're not going to go into that. Um, and then obviously in the United States, we have um, Inside Higher Ed, which Times Higher Education just acquired earlier this year. So they are one of our uh, partners. Uh, and then there's the Chronicle. In Canada, you've got uh, the Globe and Mail does some really good higher education stuff. Um, in Australia, you have the Australian, which has a higher education supplement. I think that comes out once a week. So it's a it's a rich media landscape because there just there's just so much to discuss within higher education. Got it. Yeah, and so it's really interesting what you're saying about you know research and researchers being covered all the time. Um, and I agree with you. Yet on the flip side, I would counter that. Um, we don't always, as the research community, we might not always do the best job of conveying our research in a way that's palpable and easy to digest for readers and authors. And I, I personally found, um, you know, that the the pandemic just kind of exacerbated or or shed a light on this issue. The fact that even though it was clear that research was, you know, sort of the 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 venue to the vaccine and 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 to trying to get our lives back into order and shape again it still was not an easy argument to make and fed, met a lot of resistance. I wouldn't just say, you know, on, on the, I guess, you know, sort of micro level about the vaccine and questions around that. But to me, what's more interesting is the macro level of, do we trust science, right? Is the scientific process sort of a given that 
everyone's and probably most of the listeners to this podcast will say, yes, of course, what's the question? But I think if we open ourselves up and listen, you know, get ourselves out of our own echo chambers, we'll realize that not everyone has that sort of instinctual immediate response to yes, of course it is. So I wonder, you know, I mean, obviously, so I wonder if it's a matter of thinking creatively about how we convey science beyond just you know, whether there's a lot of news stories about it, because, you know, a news story about, you know, I don't know, rape on campus, which obviously is, is, is terribly distressing is not what's going to help us get research um, to where, to the standing that we, we need it to go to. So I'm wondering like what the tension is there and how to bring out, not to, you know, obviously not to sort of um, uh, turn a blind eye to those important stories, but how do we also shine a light on, the really good work that's being done by researchers. Yeah, I think this is a, a concern for people working in universities all over the world um, and not something that people have found a solution for. Um, I think it works on a number of levels. So universities and scientists and researchers engaging with governments, engaging with policymakers is one way to do it. Um, and then just kind of crossing that town gown barrier, which is kind of an old fashioned way of thinking about it, but um, really doing the the public scholarship work, which is difficult whenever you mentioned echo chambers, but you know, everybody who's a climate change denier or an anti-vaxxer also exists in their own echo chambers. And sometimes they just don't want to be convinced. So no matter how how simply you explain the science to them. They're just, they're just not going to get it because it's become this ideological stance for them. But I do think that there is some, some ground to be made up there from experts, academics, scientists, in terms of the way that they engage with people. There was a good piece um, on Times Higher Education that we put up a couple of months ago. Um, we can put it into the show notes after, after the, after the show you can access it. Yeah. Um, Sorry, let me just um, close that up. Um, I'll put it into the show notes. But basically what, what he was saying was um, that scientists have kind of, or academics, the researchers have kind of forgotten how to engage with the public, that um, it, it's more about just kind of stopping like, it's science, stupid. Like, don't you get it? It's climate change, stupid. This is how it's going. It's it's kind of just like not browbeating people with with what you understand is the truth and in the scientific process, it's really just kind of being a bit more empathetic and understanding where they're coming from and taking much more kind of kind accepting stance to it. Um, because no one's going to respond to, to, to someone just coming in and saying, you're an idiot. This is what's going on. Not saying that everybody does that, but I think, I think there is, um, some tact and, and a certain approach that, that maybe could work better than others. Yeah. 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 And I think maybe giving, you know, I find it interesting when having, you know, when these arguments or debates come up online, people do want to cite precedent or do want to cite sources, right? The question is, what's the veracity of those sources? So also giving people skills to be able to decipher the difference between, let's say, an academic journal to a preprint to a blog of opinion piece, you know, that might be, you know, that might not be so clear and obvious, either because, you know, the reader doesn't have experience with a different fora or because, um, maybe they're pretending to be, you know, maybe certain certain um, uh, data is pretending to be fact. So how do we how do we teach our our students and our our kids how to check what's being you know said in the name of science as well? I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, go ahead. 
No, no, I was gonna, I was gonna take it to a new, uh, to take it to another direction. So if let's you, go. you, know, you want to go. add something about that, okay? So yeah, that's right. I, I want to circle around and, and and have you tell us a little bit more. We've we've, we've been discussing THE, you know, as as the um the, the the behemoth that it is, and all the wonderful work that you're doing. But can you tell us a little bit more about the campus, which I understand is kind of your more more of your baby? Um, and uh, what are the goals? Um, what have you been able to accomplish until now? And kind of what are what's what's your strategic vision for for the campus? So um, THE campus is is very much a COVID baby, <laughs> like that COVID puppy that everybody adopted. Uh, it's now become a COVID teenage dog. No, um, it was uh, conceived uh, in May of 2020 when the world was turned upside down for everybody and when universities were really scrambling to transition all of their operations online, including teaching and learning, which was perhaps the, the biggest uh, lift and shift that they were undertaking. Um, but there are also some really incredible things that were happening in universities and from individual lecturers and educators at that time to really meet students where they were and to, to maintain business as usual as much as they possibly could during this terrible global pandemic and crisis that everybody was living through. So we recognize that there were some pretty incredible things that were happening. And also universities, as you'll very much be aware, uh, are are quite reticent to change. And the analogy that people use is doing a, a barge, doing a U-turn. Like it's 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 difficult to, to enact any sort of change. But I think what universities did during the pandemic is, is pretty incredible. Shifting everything online, of course, there were nothing was perfectly smooth. Of course, there were some teething issues. Of course, uh, it wasn't completely perfect. But I think in general, the way that they would manage to continue to offer an education, continue to do labs virtually, continue to do um, field trips, place-based education, developing virtual reality to, to give students some sort of like cultural experience. Like it's been absolutely incredible what people have done in the past two years that seemed almost impossible in 2019 when we were considering the state of digital higher education. Uh, so we saw this happening in, in May of 2020 and we thought it was a good opportunity to connect this to create a platform where people could go and find advice from people who were coming up against the same challenges that they were encountering in their teaching and learning. That's initially what we started focusing on to really connect all the great innovations that were happening around the world. So we launched in February of 2021. Uh, so we've been going for just a little over 18 months now. Um, and it's been great. It's uh, We've published over... Um, probably a thousand resources now from academics and university staff working right around the world. Uh, we originally started focusing on online teaching and learning, but we've, we've expanded to other communities of practice within higher education. So that includes support for early career researchers, uh, research strategy, progressing the sustainable development goals, equity, diversity, inclusion, and internationalization. And we're seeing those as kind of our six key challenges uh, that universities around the world could probably find some common ground on and offer some advice, practical tips uh, to help each other out um, to kind of get through that stuff or solve it or find solutions. I'm not saying those are the only big challenges that universities face, clearly not. And there are others that we will eventually grow into, but those are the ones we're focusing on right now. And the type of content that is on campus, we call them resources because they essentially are resources. It's very straightforward. They're written by, as I said, academics, university, faculty, staff, senior leaders. Um, they're 800 to 1,000 words. Uh, we edit them and we commission them so that they're very easy to read for the time poor academic working in universities. Um, so you can get straight to the point. Um, yeah, and they're, they're, they're a way to 
to communicate with kind of this global network of higher education professionals that we've got coming to THE um, about the to kind of show off a little bit from yourself, but then also hopefully find some some help there. And one last thing I'll say is that it's different to the journalism that we have on Times Higher Education, which sits behind our paywall. All of the content on THE campus is free and open access. So that means that whether you're working at a university in New York or Uganda, you'll be able to log on and, and find some help free of charge. Amazing. And what about, so it sounds, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you're, you have authors and readers from around the world. It's not, you know, sort of pre- too heavily primarily based only in the UK or only in the US. Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, yes, we are a UK-based team, but um, we commission pieces from people all over the world. I will say we're an English language publication, so we are probably slightly skewed to the UK, uh, Australia, US, but we have authors and partners. That's part of our Campus Plus model. We are partnering with universities uh, around the world to get kind of an insider track to our editing process, to work with us more closely as editors, to think of ideas, commission pieces, write briefs and stuff to, to get the pieces up to the publishing standard that we need them to be. And our partnership network uh, includes universities on five continents. Uh, so we've got several in Asia. Um, we've got two in South America. Uh, we've got a few dotted around Europe. So in quite a few non-English speaking countries as well. Yeah, and as well, you well know by now, Sarah, um, when, you know, uh, one of the things that I feel most passionate about is getting is getting important pieces out to other languages. So when you are ready for that next step, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have another conversation and we'll see how we do that because um, that's, that's, <clears throat> that's really important. Um, now, now, let me ask you if if I, you know, one of the listeners is uh, has something they feel passionate about. Um, is it only commission projects that you're that you're going to be looking at, or can uh, people pitch you and uh, try and get their own op eds or you know resources, uh, as you call them, uh, up on the site? Yeah, please do pitch us. So we do resources. We also do op eds on THE campus. We take pitches. Get in touch with me, Sarah.Custer at TimesHigherEducation.com. Um, please get in touch. We are always happy to hear from people. We will work with you to develop your idea or say, no, start again. Uh, we'll be pretty honest with you of whether we think it's uh, a goer or not. And I will just say, I think it is from feedback that we've had from our authors is it's a great alternative channel uh, to publish your work and to get your work out there. If you um, it's different from uh, an academic journal or a book chapter or, um, uh, or a book in itself um, in terms of the type of content that we're looking for, but it's a, it's a similar audience in terms of an academic audience. So it's a great way to maybe um, share an idea that, probably isn't developed enough or researched enough to go through like a peer review article. But at the same time, we have had authors tell us that their campus resources have been picked up and cited in peer reviewed journals. So there is an impact that these pieces are having on the academic community. Um, so it's a great way to, to trial some stuff or just put your ideas out there or, or, or try different um, editorial streams and processes in terms of professional development. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, speaking personally, I, I think I, I find there's something really liberating when you're used to kind of having to write in an academic context where every, you know, every I and T is going to be scrutinized and, and checked and cross-checked and there's something, you know, and, and, and there's not much room for opinion um, and there shouldn't be. Um, whereas I think there's something nice about being able to write. Um, uh, I was able to publish an article a few 
um, months ago, Times Edu- Higher Education. And first of all, it was nice just to have a really intelligent editor coming back with really thoughtful comments. That was nice as a as someone who you know is usually on the other side of the of the chair. Um, but also just having the freedom to be able to express you know sort of opinions or insights. Um, which are obviously based on, you know, experience and fact and other resources, but also being able to, you know, kind of give a little bit more over of, of myself than I would have been able to maybe in a typical academic um, uh, setting. So I think that's a nice sort of opportunity. And I also think that, you know, these are the sort of initiatives that strike me and I, I'm not a fortune teller, but it strikes me as it will be much harder, you know, as you grow at, at THE campus and as it becomes more popular, it will only get harder to publish because you're probably going to, you know, be getting more and more excellent, um, you know, pitches. So this is the time, you know, I mean, it, I'm, even the stuff that comes out now is great, but I, I feel like, you know, get in on the, on the ground floor um, before everyone knows about it. And, and uh, you can really kind of, you know, get your research out there. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm doing a little bit of a plug, a good... but I really do think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Avi. That would be a, a great problem for us to have. So I, I hope that day comes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, you recently, now in addition, we, we're, we've been talking a lot about um, written content, but we're both here on a podcast, and um, I understand that you also run the THE Campus podcast. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, that, about the, you know, what, what you cover over there, um, and, uh, and also, you know, kind of what are, some of the, what are some of the episodes in your mind that you really kind of like stand out, um, that you really enjoy doing, and that you would recommend if people were to begin, you know, somewhere, where, what, what should they be checking out? Yeah. So uh, with the podcast, we're trying to kind of take the conversations that we're having on THE campus as practical advice conversations and and bring them to life a little bit uh, in a podcast format. I really enjoy audio and and podcasting. So it's, it comes as a natural to me. Um, And hopefully I think it really appeals to to certain people in terms of how they consume media. I I think everybody listening to this would probably agree with that. Um, So it's really just kind of chatting with them, kind of informal chit chats uh, about a specific topic. On THE campus, we have uh, spotlights. These are uh, collections of resources around a specific topic. This is really linked to our publishing schedule. Um, So they will be around specific topics. So for example, We've got one coming out tomorrow uh, about how to make your teaching interesting. So we're doing a podcast now about what does interesting mean? What what makes something interesting? So we've spoken to a psychologist to give us kind of a definition of what is interesting. And it was quite, whenever we recorded the podcast, we really struggled to just not say the word interesting all the time. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was uh, quite compelling to hear him explain what makes something interesting and then how there's a bit of a cliff edge between interesting and then kind of new overload. Um, so that was good. And then we spoke to somebody who talked about uh, what makes teaching interesting. And then we spoke to somebody about how to find counterintuitive uh, conclusions in your research, your data. So it's, it's hopefully taking a, a bit more of a kind of a curious angle to, to more of the practical day-to-day stuff of kind of, higher education practice. Um, so that's one that we've got coming out. Um, and then obviously the one that you contributed to Avi was all about writing tips. So this coincided with uh, a spotlight that we put together all about, uh, how to write in higher education, writing tips, uh, research tips, everything from time management to how to structure a sentence. And for that one, uh, we pulled together contributions from people around the world to give us their short uh, three to five minute tips. And this was great because it was a a tapestry of different voices and accents uh, from around the world 
from people who have done it, who have successfully published, giving their tips. Um, and I, that, that to me was probably the most rewarding one. And we've had some really good feedback on that just because I think that appeals to people who, even who are outside of academic research. Everybody's looking for writing tips because everybody maybe wants to be a writer or has some sort of writing uh, ambition somewhere in the back of their mind. So to hear other people who have done it successfully talk about how they did it uh, was really compelling. And then I did one recently with um, Freeman Rabowski, who's the president of University of Maryland, Baltimore County. That one was looking about at inclusivity. Freeman was a civil rights activist in segregated Alabama. So just digging into his history a little bit and the successes that he's done uh, and achieved at UMBC during his tenure there was was fascinating. So we really kind of run the gamut in terms of the, the type of episodes that we're doing and the types of people that we're talking to. I mean, it could be a, a postdoc student at Berkeley contributed to our uh, writing tips podcast all the way up to, to university presidents. Yeah, I highly recommend re, um, uh, listening to the writing tips one, um, except for the four minutes that I gave. But everything else there is is uh, is great. Um, I just wanted to share with you, um, uh, Sarah. Um, I looked on thesaurus.com while you were speaking. So you've got fascinating, striking, alluring, amusing. Um, so all these can be replaced for interesting. So I, not that you needed me for that, but um, no. Thought, see, we should have had go. that. We should have had that in front of us whenever we were <laughs> recording time, the. As you're working, um, thank you. Uh, and I and I'm also excited to hear the um, the president of UMBC. Um, I grew up about ten minutes away from there, so I'm. I'm oh I'm yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, Fascinating but, institution. What what it's evolved into is just is striking. Amazing, amazing. Um, yes, I like how you you fit that in there. Um, so and and I know that another big point of emphasis um, for your work. Uh, and I and I and I really like this is is looking at early career researchers um, and you know these can be um, you know and, and and thinking about in a really deep way kind of what are, what are some of the struggles that they are going through I think probably certain things that have been brushed under the carpet some uncomfortable things um, so can you tell us a little bit about kind of some of the pieces that you've done around early career researchers what some of those challenges and struggles they face and what are some of the maybe some of the you know kind of highlights what 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 things are highlighted for you that it's like ooh this is an unsolved issue that needs to be kind of addressed yeah i mean yeah where to begin um early career researchers i mean they're 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 vital to the future of universities and science they're often the people who do the actual work of science and experiments. They're often the ones who write all the the papers that then their supervisors or PIs will go in and and edit and check and take credit for. So they really are kind of the the workforce of science and higher education. So it's it's really important that they understand how to navigate uh, this sector. And oftentimes they're individuals who are incredibly passionate about what they're doing. They're often very underpaid. Um, so it really is a labor for labor of love for them. Um, so what we're trying to do on THE campus uh, is again offer that practical advice in terms of you know how to how to choose a supervisor, um, how to how to publish something, how to understand what peer review is, um, how to write a grant proposal, um, how to design uh, research experiments, uh, everything around kind of time management, work-life balance management, um, how to streamline research, uh, you know, what sort of academic 
technology apps platforms can help you manage your data or manage your time better. So it's all that kind of like practicey stuff. Um, but then in terms of issues that need a bit of a closer look, this is something that we cover quite a bit on time to education and our journalism is just looking at um, a lot of the abuses that happen for early career researchers, uh, sexual abuse, um, bullying, um, work overload, so we don't really want to, on THE campus, we don't want to be like, oh, this is how you manage bullying because bullying shouldn't be happening at all. So it's not necessarily a, the victim of bullying that are going to be able to solve this problem. But it is something that we we don't shy away from on Times Higher Education. We want to cover it as much as possible and, and talk about it and talk about things that are being done to um, mitigate it, solve the issue. Um, and then, yeah, on, on, like I said, on THE campus, we're just kind of trying to offer support for for the job of research if that makes sense yeah no i think it 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 definitely makes sense and i think that there's a lot of uncomfortability around what is the role of an early career researcher you know are they paid employee or are they you know paid through a stipend or then become an adjunct um you know are there is there any funding to support their research or they kind of have to you know dig out of their own pockets What's their relationship with, you know, their advisors look like? And is that, you know, are they getting proper credit for the work that they're doing? I mean, these are issues that really, um, I recently spoke on a, a, you know, for those who listen to the podcast, um, I spoke to Jason Provost from Brill, and he was telling me that they had a whole holdup with a few chapters of a book being published because the advisor just simply refused to give credit to the student who had written the majority of the book and even just have their name on it. So obviously, as an academic community, we need to incentivize good behavior, but we also need to expect and demand, you know, from more senior researchers to remember kind of where they came from and, 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 and how they're doing things. And also, you know, and, 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 um, but I guess, you know, on the flip side, um, you know, make sure that the, the, the junior scholars are, are, are on the one hand taken care of, but still have the humility to know that they need to learn, um, and, and gain from the experience of, of their, you know, of, of their peers. So, you know, I, there's probably a lot more that can be said about this. And maybe this is a topic for a future, for a future podcast. But, um, but I think it's definitely, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is a, a unique struggle that, that the academic community needs to, uh, needs to contend with. Yeah. And one thing I will say is in our, we are, we are speaking as well to the, the research supervisors and the people who are managing the early career researchers. And I think that's where we would offer more advice in terms of how to deal with diversity in your team or how to deal with neurodiverse uh, lab people. And that's where we give a bit, I mean, it's, it's the, these are the managers of science or the managers of, of historical archives and all of this stuff, you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, just cause you're a, a brilliant scientist or a brilliant historian doesn't mean that you're a brilliant people manager. And I think those two can often get confused, uh, especially in academia and just the structures that it's built on where it is this system of more senior scholars turning around and pulling up the junior scholars and really mentoring them and, and bringing them up and, and teaching them and supervising them. But if you, yeah, if you don't know how to do that well, and if you don't know how to seed ground a little bit and let someone else have their time in the spotlight, um, then you're not doing your job that well. Yeah, I agree. Now, um, I want to, uh, we, we could go on for hours here, but I, I, I want to, you know, let you go. But I, I want to know, um, 
for for those who are interested in learning more, either about any of the topics that you've discussed here today, or uh, someone who's interested in, in in giving a pitch. So you mentioned your email address, which is great. Maybe you could you know we'll, we'll throw that in the show notes. But um, other ways people connect can connect with you, LinkedIn. If people want to go and check out some of the resources, what what's kind of the best way to take the next step forward? Yeah, so uh, you can find all the resources on timeshireducation.com forward slash campus. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Sarah K. Custer, that's Sarah No H. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, even though I don't really use it that much. So Twitter or email are probably the best ways to, to get in touch with me. And also, I, I didn't mention, but we have events now that we can all get together. THE Campus has events all over the world. We've we fired up that engine. So we will be in LA in November. We will be in London in November as well. We will be in, I think, Melbourne or Sydney in uh, August. We'll be in Japan in December. So we will be probably in your region at some point in the next year. So if you're interested in coming to meet us in person, also get in touch and let's chat about that. Brilliant. Fantastic. And are you, do, are you, will you be attending some of those, some of those meetings? <laughs> I'll be, I'll be in, I will definitely be in LA. I don't know if I'll make it to, to the other side of the world, but someone from campus will be there. So if not me, then one of my colleagues. Fantastic. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was really great to kind of pick your brain. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure our listeners kind of learned a lot about this world of, you know, uh, what does higher education journalism and media mean? Um, and I think that, um, you know, hopefully this is the starting point to uh, scholars really kind of thinking and internalizing about how they can, um, you know, share ideas with each other, both best, best practices, as well as communicate the research in an effective way. So thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Avi.